Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Ingenni. And today, we are going to be talking about whether DevOps even makes sense for embedded systems development. What do you think, Luca? Oh, I think it makes perfect sense. Shocker. Yes. Um, you know, it, it's, it's funny because a lot of people claim that, no, it doesn't make sense. All of this newfangled agile stuff, just, you know, it doesn't work for, for serious industries like embedded. Um, but I completely disagree, <laughs> especially because, to my mind, there is nothing new about DevOps. DevOps is just, you know, good, old-fashioned, solid engineering practice. Translated to maybe a new, you know, a new way of working or a new set of tools. Yeah, to a new set of tools. That's all. So, do you actually hear people saying that? Do people actually come up to you and say this doesn't make sense for embedded? I don't know that I've actually heard anyone say that. I guess in my experience, people in the embedded world uh, either are tuned into that or not. And you've never heard somebody claim that, like. Agile or, or DevOps doesn't work for embedded. Do they even worry about it? Okay, so I would say in the medical devices world, which is where I specialize, DevOps is not really a thing. People don't people that I've interacted with don't really know what DevOps is. They don't. It's just not a part of the industry. Agile is very hot within the uh, medical devices world. It's a very hot topic, and I have had people had very strong reactions. To that, some people I know are uh, espouse it and practice it diligently in their own development, and other people hate it. And I, I think it's become a little bit of a Rorschach test, where you know how you how you view it says a little more about you than about Agile. But it's it's a very fuzzy term, has a lot of imperfect definitions and applications, and so I think people react to Agile, but they don't really know about DevOps. Yeah, so maybe I need to take a step back and kind of explain why. I'm even talking about this, which is that I have become a DevOps consultant. I help organizations, I help teams to adopt DevOps practices. However, I originally come from the embedded world. I'm I'm a trained aeronautical engineer, so you know I I come from a very sort of old-fashioned engineering background. No. <laughs> no software far and way, wide whatsoever. Um, and I spent a lot of time in embedded, especially safety-critical embedded, like aeronautical industry, automotive industry, that kind of thing. And so I know very well how the sausage gets made. And I, I do have some opinions on what works or doesn't work as far as agile combined with embedded and especially um, safety critical embedded. And so I, I have a suspicion, Jeff, that uh, a lot of the people you talk to are using techniques and perspectives that might be considered agile or that might be considered like in line with DevOps without realizing that or, or caring about it, to be honest. Right. And I've seen it both ways in the sense that I've seen people say they're doing scrum. And what that means is that they have a meeting every day and a meeting every two weeks. And in their <laughs> mind, that means they're doing scrum. And I see other people, uh, pretty much anyone in the medical devices world. I 
My oh, son has now. My son have ne- has never discovered this room in our house before. We're in a rental house while our house is getting renovated, and so he's never been in this room before. So now that he knows it's here, this is a thing. So yes, get, get ready for a new exciting game. A new exciting game during our first podcast. Wonderful. All right. So we were talking about. I, I was talking about my experience with the medical device industry, and I've seen people. Uh, you know, throw together some meetings and think they're doing scrum. There's no continuous improvement. There's no, you know, they think basically they break the work up into two week sprints and it just gets, even then it's not even focused during the two weeks. It, it basically is just a, a meeting every day and a meeting every two weeks. And that's agile scrum. So I will say anyone in the medical devices industry who is using uh, more modern DevOps techniques like continuous integration, uh, automate, uh, uh, incorporating heavy automation into their workflow. Any of those people, they are well versed, I think, in DevOps and Agile principles. So anyone in the medical devices who's using that uh, has already uh, bought into this philosophy and has investigated and learned about it. Maybe come from a different industry or just uh, uh, taking the time to learn how to do it properly. Uh, so I would say modern tool usage in, at least in the medical device industry is very much an indicator that they've got the philosophy pretty, pretty well ingrained. Whereas maybe in other industries, there's a bit of a cargo culting where people use the tools without really understanding the processes and more importantly, the culture behind it. What's your thought on that? Yeah, this is this is exactly it. Like I, I observe so many teams who are cargo culting agile and, and cargo culting perhaps scrum by as you say, having having um a daily scrum that takes like an hour every day and uh is is just a big old status meeting or something and it's and then they complain that it's not working and that it's a waste of time. And I agree, if you do it that way, it doesn't work and it's just a waste of time. Right. <clears throat> But then again, there's, as you say, also teams that are, you know, that are using very modern techniques, which are not very modern at all. Like, I say modern only because the medical device industry is 10 years behind everyone. Yeah, that means they're still faster than most of Embedded, I think. Fair enough. Um, but, you know, short, short cycles, short iterations, frequent prototyping have been... I think uh, a fundamental good engineering practices for probably centuries. So there's there's really nothing surprising about it, and and now we're just taking this approach to software, and uh, software prototypes are just exceptionally cheap. And so why shouldn't we make prototypes constantly? But that's really the only difference, isn't it? Agreed. So, so this is, after all, the Embedded Agile podcast, and there's lots of Agile and DevOps podcasts out there, but we're here to talk specifically about how it fits to the embedded world. So, so comparing the impar- comparing embedded development, particularly safety critical, because you and I both come from that. But just zooming back, embedded, we are writing software that is that is running and directly interacting with hardware. <gasps> Gasp. How do how do you see agile uh, or or and or DevOps principles fitting into that world? Well, I don't see why they shouldn't fit. 
Quite but I guess, right, mm-hmm. but I guess what are what are mm-hmm. there have to be some implications in terms of uh so so I, I can think off the top of my head, hardware hardware iteration times are naturally far slower. It is it is more difficult to do a rev of hardware than it, at least of production quality. You know, nowadays with rapid prototyping techniques at the early phase, you can you can you can and should do rapid prototyping to get very close but when you do a your first production board design a pcb design for a medical device you know you should plan on four ish revisions of that board during the life of the project but you're going to have many 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 more software iterations so what do you see as kind of the fundamental implications of that for this process yeah so i i think um, the fundamental implications revolve really about uh, around an impedance mismatch between different parts of the project, and that uh, applies both to the people and to the technologies and and what those technologies mean for the process. Um, because you know, in in a, in a typical embedded systems project, you have your mechanical engineers, you have your electrical engineers. And you have to your software engineers, and they see the world very differently, um, as you've just discussed. Um, and they use very different language. They come from very different traditions, and that just makes it difficult, more difficult maybe than than just plain software projects, for everybody to find a common language and a common approach that results in you being able to move forward faster, more confidently. Um, with less potential for, for mistakes, which of course is ultimately the goal. Um, and so I think the hard thing is that you will almost inevitably end up with a project that has within itself varying velocities. As you said, you know, even if I have a really fast ball spin, I probably need to get my designs to some some external fabricator and they're going to make it and they're going to ship it to me and that's the first week already gone and you, you you don't even have the prototype in your hands yet so i'm not sure whether two week sprints even make sense for pcb design but you know that there's nothing wrong with saying we need longer sprints because you know this is the reality we live in we we need more time so we we're going to take more time we're still going as fast as we can as tight iterations as we can, but that means something different for electrical engineers than it means for plain software. Do you think that means that the the sprint duration should essentially be split? That maybe the software, once you have hardware to work with, or maybe even before, uh, the the electrical team is doing their design and they just have a longer time horizon, and the software and or firmware team has shorter sprints and they are working with the hardware that they have and maybe doing some work on the next revision of hardware that they know is coming down the pipeline. Yes, exactly. So yeah, this is one, one perfectly valid approach to split the timeline. Say we, we spin a new board revision reliably, let's say every, every four weeks, maybe that's the, the cadence of the electrical engineers and we produce new, new firmware, maybe every week or every two weeks. And that's the cadence for the software engineers. And that's that's fine. 
and I've I've observed that work very well because it the, the good thing about this is that it makes expectations so clear. Like the 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 software guys can align their own faster sprints with the new board designs that they know are going to come down the pipe, you know, four weeks from now or whenever. So have you have you been on a project where that kind of cadence for hardware release has actually been done and adhered to? Not a four week cadence. I wish, and and I'm I'm sure it's it's possible. I I just have never met, or I've never been part of an organization that was that mature that even sort of considered that feasible. I'm I'm quite convinced it's feasible, but they they never really tried because they didn't think it you know it was a goal worth pursuing i think got it got it that that makes sense that we're that you're essentially talking about a when you say that you know a, a fixed kind of cadence for hardware releases you're talking about a very mature organization that is doing that uh certainly mo- most of the projects that i've been on are smaller much smaller teams and it's very ad hoc and it's basically you get a new board and the software team starts working at it and we just start making a list of all the things that are wrong with it that need need fixing. And then as soon as that list kind of tapers off in terms of the production of, of new things, you know, the, the electrical engineers take that start to do the next revision, fixing all of those issues. And we continue development with whatever kind of patched up version of that board that we have. Yeah. Yes. And and, and I'm advocating for a fixed release cycle, even there, like we agree that we're going to spin a new board every four weeks or whatever whatever makes sense. And, and you just do it that way. And, you know, maybe you have two pages worth of known defects in, in the board and you can't address them all in four weeks, whatever. You fix the most egregious ones, the ones that you can fit into four weeks, and that's the new iteration. And then, you know, and, and then you continue that way. You still get a lot more feedback, a lot more early. Um, and at the same time, everybody gets really used to iterating this way and and working with new revisions that's not that's not a hard or scary di- thing anymore that's just something you do on every like first monday of the month <laughs> interesting yeah so that it's it's funny like with all this talk of uh, you know as much as i am a proponent of uh agile methods and as steeped as i am in the embedded development world that's what i do and again i'm i'm focused on the medical device industry i had not really thought that fixed fixed sprint durations for hardware was either an either feasible or really a, a worthy goal uh that's actually a new surprisingly enough that's a that's a new concept to me so i'm just kind of wrestling with that and trying to wrap my head around i'm trying i'm 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 going i might <laughs> i don't want this episode to devolve into me trying to poke holes in that uh i think i'm going to kind of let that marinate for a little while and and see if i can I think we can maybe have a, a deeper discussion about that in a future episode. That's really intriguing. Yeah, but but you know, this is the core of it. So many people um, stop short of what really the goals of agile are, which which is to to enable fast feedback, and th- this is precisely one of the ways of doing it. Um, if you if you don't find ways to to actually challenge yourself and your organization and to really find a way of getting and dealing with that fast feedback you you know you're standing in your own way 
so how about this? So, so I would say, so, uh, reducing agile to fast feedback, that's true. The, the other, one of the other big components is the, the smooth flow of work Mm -hmm. in the forward direction. That's kind of, you know, that's getting Mm -hmm. back to lean manufacturing principles, which was kind of the the movement that underpinned all this. So I Mm -hmm. feel like the, the fixed iteration length really is more about the smooth flow of work forward and, and enable like, because, so if you say we're releasing hardware every four weeks or every six weeks, whatever it is. And I say, I can't quite make it on six weeks, but I can make it on seven, like to get these other things in, uh, you know, what is it about the, the fixed duration that is helpful in that case when you would say, oh, if I just had an extra week, I could handle, I could incorporate these things that we already know are problems into the next hardware revision. And then you won't have to deal with them for the following six weeks. Yeah, but you know, what's while- the rush? You know, if you if you can if you can't incorporate them into this sprint, you can incorporate them into the next. And maybe instead of waiting longer, you should have waited, you know, less time. Less time. <laughs> maybe instead of going for six week iterations and and hugging for a seventh, you should have gone to four weeks in the first place. And then, <laughs> and then what you get is the fast feedback both. Technologically, you know, you get more board spins out. And even though, you know, even if you know that they have known issues, maybe this particular, I don't know, sensor doesn't work, whatever. So you don't, so you don't work on it because you know a fix is already coming down the pipe in the next sprint. Right. There's really no, no need to worry. But at the same time, you're getting so much more opportunity to find maybe even more problems or workarounds. Maybe you don't actually need the fix in hardware. Um, and you're also getting feedback, not just technologically, but also on your organization. Every four weeks or even shorter, you prove to yourselves that you can spin a PCB. Um, every four weeks, you prove to yourselves that you know all of your processes work, your estimations work, um, your deployments work, all of the things that you also need to be good at and that are somehow big and scary, they become much smaller and much less scary if you exercise them often enough, and if you don't actually include so much stuff in every single release. Interesting. All right. I, I, I definitely am going to think about that a little bit more and, and uh, I, I like it. I think it's a really intriguing idea, but I will say it, your, your, I think your initial description of it, where you say that that is a, that is a hallmark of a very mature organization. I would believe, I would absolutely agree with that. And uh so, so you're, you're at least in the medical device world, it's often not mature organizations. It is often a startup or, uh, and could be a startup with people who are inexperienced or people who are very experienced, but are people who are pulling together a team of contractors. I'm actually a part of a project like this right now, uh, where there's the two founders and they've now pulled together a team of, you know, nine or 10 contractors and that's the company. So it's this company that kind of springs into existence for this development of this first product. And, you know, how, how do you think these principles apply to such a company like that? And that's not uncommon. I've seen that many, many times. So it's kind of a use case that I need to be well-versed in, in working in and advocating for. 
let let me put it this way. When I said not very mature organizations, I meant mostly culturally, because even if you're maybe, maybe you're a newly formed organization, newly formed team and newly formed startup, something of that nature, of course, you're still kind of figuring, figuring all of that out, finding your way, finding which approach works. So wouldn't you benefit tremendously from fast feedback and from frequent opportunities to fix mistakes? It's even more valuable in, in such situations. Um, the hard thing about it is that you need to have the right mindset for it. You need to keep your eye on the ball. You need to realize, what is it that I'm looking for? I'm not looking for features at this point. I'm not trying to get a product out the door as fast as I can. Instead, I'm trying to get the way I'm building a product as well-honed as I can. And speed will just be a byproduct and quality will be, just be a byproduct from doing things properly, having short iterations, having a clarity of the situation of the product, of the bugs that are that exist, of maybe a roadmap to fixing them and so forth. And that, you know, that it that's probably actually easier in a startup if if you've got people who've got the right mindset or in in a newly formed team because you can say, okay, guys, we're going to do this properly. I think it's much harder to instill this new approach into an established organization who are steeped in slowness, careful approaches, um, trying to prove to, to the regulators that, you know, by being slow, we're being careful. You can be fast and careful. And in fact, there is, there is a potential for uh, avoiding mistakes by just uncovering them very early in being fast, in having fast iterations. So you, so you bring up, so, so you said the word regulator, which, uh, uh, you know, we're, we both come from a safety critical embedded background. So, uh, uh, you've got experience in aerospace. I did a stint in aerospace, but it was, uh, it was unmanned vehicles and it was a startup. So it was, we were <laughs> much more of the wild, wild west than most aerospace industries were, um, aerospace companies were, but so what, what additional, facets do safety critical industries have that say, so we, you, we've gone from non-embedded industries, you were, mm-hmm. of which there are many, you know, re- you're releasing a software product of some kind and you will often help these organizations. You'll go in, you'll do DevOps coaching and essentially help them improve their processes. We have people, uh, Im- embedded companies that are producing a device that has software running on that device. And maybe it's interacting with a mobile app or their cloud service or what have you. And then now we, then we move to safety critical industries. You're in those devices, those, um, controllers are in a medical device. They're in a uh, vehicle, they're in an airplane. Um, you know, they're running a nuclear power plant, whatever (laughs) those, Mm -hmm. those highly regulated safety critical industries. Uh, what additional differentiators do you see there? Uh, that maybe differentiate them from a consumer electronic device? Well, um, you need to not just be certain of the quality you're, you're putting out. You actually need to be able to prove it to somebody else that, yes, we are doing good work and it produced good results. Uh, traditionally, this is done in the form of reviews, of you know assessments, typically after the fact. And a lot of people claim that 
not just in safety critical, this is also, for example, true in banking. Uh, if, if I talk to insurance companies or banking companies, uh, they say, oh, yeah, we can do all of these things. We can't be as fast because somebody needs to come in and look at the stuff we've built and just, uh, and make certain that we've built them the right way. But I don't see how that in in any way conflicts with Agile because, you know, you can iterate really fast and then once you've stabilized your thing, you can still show it to, to your assessor and say, look here, Mr. Assessor or Mrs. Assessor, is do you feel that this is a, a this is ready for release to to the public? Uh, this is maybe ready for first flight. So there's really no reason to slow down your development just to have this checkpoint after the fact. And in fact, I argue that you can turn a large part of this whole process on its head, assuming that the regulator goes along with it, which is that instead of testing your product after the fact, verifying that your product does the right thing, you could in, have them inspect your build processes, your testing methods. And sort of as soon as you have a, you have built a thing <clears throat> that satisfies the tests you've built and that they have already assessed, then by definition, that thing is already safe, has passed inspection. You know, if you if you do test-driven development, so you write your tests first, and once you've got the test, you can show them to the assessor and say, do those tests already satisfy you? And then once you've built a thing and, it, and all the tests are green, nobody needs to look at the thing even anymore. It's already okay. That's actually something I, I'm, even from a larger organizational perspective, uh, I, again, just focusing on the medical device industry, because that's where my experience is, uh, there's something called a, FDA pre-submission meeting. So when you, you know, when you submit an application to the FDA to uh, uh, grant you approval to market your device for, uh, you know, some something new or something extremely, extremely risky, or get clearance to market it uh, in in a less rigorous process called a five ten k. In either one of those, you can have a pre-submission meeting much earlier in your development process, where essentially you say. This is what we're planning to do. These are the tests we're going to run. If we pass those tests, is that is that going to be sufficient? And in some manner, you ask that of the of the FDA, and that's where you can get clarity. Where you don't have to wait till the very end, where you actually do your submission, and they say, "Oh yeah, did you forget to do the test for biocompatibility? Yeah, you need to go back and do that." Um, so this process of getting that feedback earlier, and I love, I love even viewing that as test-driven development in a, uh, in a way of just enumerating the tests that you're going to do very, very early. And clearly you should do this just from a project risk standpoint, but uh, a lot of people don't. And, and they, their first, the first time they get feedback from the FDA is in the final meeting at the end of the product development process. After everything is done, that's the first time they get feedback from their regulator. And that's precisely whether, what, the worst time to get it. The worst it? time to get it after you've invested all that money. So, uh, you know, these these techniques and this the the principles really, it's not really techniques, it's principles of smooth work going forward and quick iterations to get quick feedback back uh, to your organization. You know, that happens both at a at the technical engineering level, but also at the organizational level. I'm preaching to the choir, I know this is what you 
talk about all of the time. <laughs> yes, but it's, it's so surprisingly hard. Like it, I, at, at their core, those principles are not very many, and they're not not all that hard to to grasp or, or you know um, or particularly controversial. But there's surprisingly much discipline required in applying them. Uh, and actually holding yourself to that standard of saying, no, we're not going to do the easy, th- easy thing of slowing down our sprints because, you know, we have so scary much to do. Instead, we're going to lean into it and speed up. Um, and that's, so, that's that's just a mindset thing, and, and that's just something that's hard for many people somehow. And the discipline that takes is that you you will have a long list of known defects and or features and the discipline is that you want to essentially you have all that list, especially of de- it's, it's even harder for defects. You have this list of defects you want to fix. It is difficult to leave things off the off this next iteration, saying we you know we're actually not going to extend the iteration even to fix the bugs we know about because we want the the feedback from fixing a list of bugs and implementing a couple of new features maybe. We want the feedback from those before even we fix the the ones further down the list. Um, yeah, you're yes, right. It's, it is it is it is it is difficult. Like in in the moment when it's time, you know, to start the next sprint, or if you don't have this process defined, if you're trying to build it from the ground up, and you say, they say, oh, but we can't get all these bugs, we can't make all these changes in our so sprint don't. time. Well, like so, don't. And it's, I mean, but I'm saying it's hard. It's difficult. Yes. But, but the funny thing is, you know, the first couple of times you've done it and you've observed that actually the, you know, the, the sky doesn't fall in your head and you, <laughs> and you've proven to yourself that the things you don't fix in this sprint, you will fix in the next one or the, the one after that. Then all of a sudden it becomes really easy to say, yes, we are aware of all of these things, all of the things we need to be doing. And now we concentrate on the most important ones first while not losing track of the other ones. And we move ahead at this, at this fast speed and it's, it doesn't feel painful at all. You just, you just do it. Why wouldn't you? It's not like you're missing anything. Right. Okay. So we've, we've talked a lot about how essentially there is no difference between embedded and non-embedded industries uh, mm-hmm. in terms of applying uh, DevOps and Agile principles are mm-hmm. there. What are the differences? Like it, there is a there is a fundamental difference that if you're building an embedded device, you have hardware. Like that. That's yes. the, by definition. So are yeah. are there are there any implications? We we've talked about one where possibly the hard the hardware is still hardware development is still subjected to sprints. Mm-hmm. It is reasonable for them to be a lower, slower cadence than the mm-hmm. software sprints, because mm-hmm. simply of the lead, like, you know, when you say when you bite off a chunk of work for a PCB design, you know, if it involves any significant layout, there can it can be spend a week just in layout, just for the engineer making sure all the traces work, you know, and then the the lead time of physical manufacture of getting the board spun, of getting it assembled, of getting it tested doing the burn-in tests and whatever else. So that lead time means hardware iterations are slower and therefore it is reasonable to have a slower, yet you're advocating still fixed hardware iteration cadence. Any other 
differences between embedded devices and industries, uh, companies that are not making embedded devices? Interestingly enough, no. <laughs> like, I Drop mean, the mic. So, some people, <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, some people argue that, you know, um, we have this problem that at some point a truck comes and takes away our device and then it's out of our hands and we can't deploy to it anymore. Yeah, that's true. But Microsoft has the same problem if you buy a shrink wrap version, version of, of MS Office. You choose when to install it. You choose when to install updates. They have no control over this thing. Is the exact same situation. Um, I think maybe actually the opposite is the case where um, embedded systems organizations now more frequently have the option of deploy deploying to devices in the field and they need to learn to live with that responsibility. Um, may maybe the most, most well-known example is that of Tesla who famously can can update the firmware over the air and it has sometimes led to horrible results like this this story of the um, of this uh, guy who was using his autopilot in his tesla and just driving along on the freeway and apparently the the lane following algorithm in his tesla had been updated it used to be that it it latched onto i think the left hand uh lane divider line sure. and just sort of follow that and they changed it to something which i find fa fairly reasonable which is to pick the center between the left hand side and the right hand side lane dividers that was all well and good until the road split and he just went straight on into into a barricade and and very sadly died right and so they they implemented a change or they they um they uh, put a change onto his device, his car. And actually, I think it was a reasonable change. I, I, I think it's a good strategy to pick the middle of the lane. If you're doing lane following, it makes sense to me. But he did not know. Like, and nobody told him that actually lane following now works differently and you should expect your car to behave differently in, in those very particular situations, in those particular corner cases. And that very sadly cost him his life. And we need to find a way to deal with those kinds of situations. Like, I, I'm, I'm not sure what the solution would have been. Should we have not flashed this update? Should he have been required to read a change log before starting to drive? Um, I, don't, I don't know, but we need to find a way to deal with that. Right. So it's, it's interesting. So I, I love that you brought up Tesla and I, I want to be careful because I feel like there's a deep rabbit hole that we can go down and, and, uh, you know, maybe we'll get lots of it, it, Tesla will, will inflame passions among the engineering community. Um, I, I think so. So I will say, I think Tesla is cavalier in their, uh, in their marketing and approach to autonomous driving. I think it has I think they have shown the industry what has what is possible in terms of over the air updates and for lack of a better term uh, you know near continuous delivery of like pushing the cadence of delivery of software to their vehicles 
orders of magnitude beyond what was what was done before. You know, any other any other car you've got to bring it into your service, they'll send you a letter saying, please bring it into a service station and we will flash a new set of firmware. Whereas with Tesla, it just happens. And I think the the mistakes that Tesla makes in terms of not being as safe as they should be with their autonomous driving technology, I don't think that has anything to do with the the their remote update capability and the cadence at which they do so. So I, I want to just because I don't want to go the rabbit hole of debating whether or not wh- debating how Tesla should do their autonomous driving. I want to kind of really keep the discussion focused more on their remote update capability and they they have changed the automotive industry. Yes, and and the same change for many is, reasons, but that but that yeah, it's, it's that going would. to happen in other industries as well, and we're going to have a, an entirely new class of problems that we didn't have before. Like maybe now our our safety case must also include stuff like um, how do we notify the driver of a change to the behavior of their car in very specific situations. Right. Left turns at night in a full moon. Whatever. Um, and and Tesla, in that sense, has, has uh, done us a service by shining a spotlight on, on the kinds of issues we can all expect in bigger or smaller ways. And yeah, and we need to find ways to deal with them, um, which, which is kind of a side effect of us speeding up, becoming more connected, which in itself, I think, is inevitable. Right. Right, I think so too, and and it is interesting that even within safety critical industries, uh, you have users of those safety critical devices who are lay people and users who are trained. So, for instance, aerospace, the user of your product is going to be, you know, a train, a very well trained pilot, whereas the user of your Tesla automobile is any person with a driver's license. And even w- and within medical devices, there are tools that are going to be used by doctors and nurses and other health professionals who are expected to read a manual, are expected to do these things. You still have to include in your risk analysis that they may not read the manual, but still, that's part of the one. You know, a, in certain cases, a valid risk mitigation is the manual says don't do this, whereas if you're pushing it to the consumer. You know, to use your example of of Tesla with the lane following, I don't I don't think it's ever reasonable to expect a driver to read a manual on how to drive a car and, and I, again I don't want this to go around the rabbit hole but read a manual on how to drive the car and know that when the road splits they're going to have to take over for their automatic for their automatic driving um, their mm-hmm. self driving car and do something differently. So it's it's just it's. Uh, there is a further classification, um, even within safety critical embedded industries. I think of uh, those products that have trained users and those products that do not. But uh, you know, maybe I'm making a distinction without a difference. That even with the even with trained users, um, you know, you can say a risk minimization is to put this in the manual, but but regulators and your own, you know, you should not lean on that as a reason to make unsafe product decisions. Yeah, a lot of meat there. A lot of meat there to explore. Yeah, I think there should become a separate episode. There's certainly a lot of stuff to to get into. All right. I feel like we are 
we are probably coming to the to the stopping point. But uh, any any final thoughts? Any kind of way to wrap this up? Yeah, I I think I just want to reiterate that you don't really have a choice of not doing agile. I think I think the market will force you to. People will not want to wait forever for your devices. And what's more, you shouldn't be afraid to do it. I th- I think it's a net benefit. At the core, agile is all about risk management, and like that's that's just fundamentally good engineering. So why wouldn't you do it? But the hard thing about it is that people like to talk about it and think about it in terms of techniques and software tools and whatever, but it's very fundamentally a mental exercise, a matter of culture, of approach, of having the right perspective. Um, and I think that's the hard part and that's the, the rewarding part. And that's the fun part if you get it right. I think that's a, a great way to uh, to sum it up. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the first episode of the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. I'm Luke Anjani. And we will see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.